as we were singing, I was thinking through uh, how long ago this was, and I reckon it was 36 years ago. Wow, am I getting old? 36 years ago when I was dating Joanne. And in those years, uh, I often went to her home and ate dinner with the family. By, by then, her, her older two sisters had already kind of moved out, but her younger sister, Nancy, was often there. And, and after dinner, we would, uh, Dad would open the Bible and would, would read a chapter of the Bible, as they have done ever since he was married. He's been doing that for 60 years, believe it or not. Um, one chapter a day, every single day, never miss a day. I've never known them to miss a day unless they're in the hospital. Um, and uh, by, that, by that pace, you can get through the whole Bible every three years. Uh, so they've been through the Bible, I figured, about 20 times, just as a family, uh, with just dad and mom. And of course, the, the kids haven't been through that many times. And then after uh, we finished reading the scriptures, Um, we would talk about the passage and that would often lead to other paths as well. Uh, Joanne's dad actually, was it grade 10 or grade eight? I can't ever remember. Grade 10, he had to get out of school in grade 10. Um, So he doesn't have a high education, but he's very well educated because he's self-taught. He was the first guy that brought brought same-day photo finishing into Canada uh, every, everybody used to develop their, their film over three weeks, and he brought it into it overnight. Uh, he's, a, he's an entrepreneur. Um, he's a great businessman. I've, I've, I'm not a businessman. Anybody who knows, talks to me knows that that's true about me. But, but he's taught me many things about business over the years. And he's a great storyteller and loves history. And it was so easy to sit at the table for an hour, sometimes even two hours, talking to dad uh, about the great battles of history, particularly World War II. I feel like, uh, Andrew, I think you've taken up the baton (laughs) because we have Andrew over to our home every week and uh, we talk so often about history and he's also so uh, easy and interesting to listen to. One One of the lessons I learned as I as dad talked about various battles that were won and lost, and particularly World War II, but other ones as well, was that wars are won by taking territory from your enemy. Uh, Yes, wars are fought also on the defensive side of things. Uh, Countries need to protect their territory from invasion, but wars are never won by defense. They are won by offensive measures. Uh, When Hitler's Germany gradually took over much of Europe, uh, there was a lot of defense going on by the the Allies against the Axis, but it wasn't until D-Day when they started to push back and gradually retake. It was a major breakthrough when they retook France from Germany and eventually took Germany as well. It was at that point that Germany surrendered and the war was won. Wars are won by taking territory away from the enemy. And this simple truth is a vital point that's often lost on Christians who are in a great spiritual war with Satan and the demonic forces of evil in the world. 
Most Christians are very aware that Satan is trying to defeat them, perhaps through some kind of captivity to pornography or, or bitterness or greed, perhaps dark feelings of hopelessness or someone living a life of deception. Most churches are aware that Satan is trying to defeat them too, collectively, through false teaching, uh, through intimidation from the world, such as mockery or accusations, so that you become afraid to speak out the truth. Or perhaps unrepentant immorality among its members. Believers who are diligent, they set up defense systems to try to protect themselves personally and, and their churches collectively from these attacks. And, and of course, that certainly is wise and is taught in Scripture. But as I've already said, wars are not won by defensive tactics. They are won by taking an, uh, territory away from the enemy. The best way to demoralize an enemy is to take territory from them. And by the way, this is exactly what Satan is trying to do to, to you and me individually. He's trying to gain ground. The Bible actually uses that terminology. He's trying to gain ground. He's trying to take territory away from you and to make it his possession. He's trying to get inroads into the church. He's trying to gain ground. And the best way to reverse his work in our lives personally and in the church, the, the way to turn the tables on the enemy is to take territory away from him. The reality is that in World War II, Germany stopped invading and taking over countries when they were invaded by the Allies and their territory was captured. My friends, it is this vital strategy that many Christians and churches have forgotten in the war with Satan. So as we continue our series um, on the Holy Spirit, we're going to discover how the Holy Spirit empowers believers to move from defensive strategies to offensive strategies in order to effectively stand against our spiritual enemies. I want to look at a very familiar portion of Scripture, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. We're actually going to just look at half of one verse, but I want you to to uh, look at the context and see what's going on here. So let me read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, about the armor of God, our spiritual warfare in Ephesians. And by the way, remember, you know, we read Ephesians as a great doctrinal treatise, and it is, but you need to read sometimes Acts 19 to remember what kind of city it was written to that was filled with demonic powers, well, that was where they, they piled up all the Christians, piled up all the magic books that were worth tons and tons of money and burned them. That was where the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast demons out of a man and, and were, were chased out uh, by, the, by the demonically empowered man and, and went out naked. And there was all kinds of healings. That was the place where, where Paul was just handkerchiefs that were touching Paul. You know, one of those uncomfortable parts of the Bible <laughs> where, you know, it sounds like Benny Hinn. You know, where the, the you know, handkerchiefs that had came from Paul were going to the sick people and they were being healed. That was Ephesians. 
That was Ephesus, rather. Like it was, it was spiritual powerhouse, demonic stronghold city. And that's who this is written to, okay? So, the, so these words that we write, they're not a theory for the Christians who are hearing them. Very, very practical for them. Let me read these verses to you. Ephesians chapter six, starting at verse 10 and going right through to verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And, and this is where we're focusing today, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, if you look at verses 10 to 12, uh, they teach us that we are in a spiritual war with invisible enemies called, in verse 12, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, cosmic powers over this present darkness. And therefore, as it says in verse 10, we need supernatural strength to fight these supernatural enemies. Then in verses 13 down to 17a, we are instructed in strategies of defense. And the, the analogy is the armor that the Roman soldier would have used in warfare. We need to employ spiritual armor that can protect us. It's protection that we're after in these verses. Uh, if you look at this carefully, and if you were to study it in, in the context of Ephesians and certainly other writings of Paul, you would realize that the, the pieces of the armor are actually descriptions of the gospel from various angles. The, 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 the defense that we have against Satan is the gospel. Various elements of it. And someday we will hopefully have the opportunity to, to study all those elements in detail. But not today. Today, we want to focus on the last part of verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
This verse instructs us about how the Holy Spirit helps us, readies us to go on the offensive in the spiritual battle. How it, it, we, we move from defensive measures to offensive measures. Uh, how do we turn the tables on the legions of demons and evil spirits and powers of darkness, cosmic powers in this present darkness? How do we turn the tables on them as they seek to tempt us and to accuse us and to oppress us and to enslave us? This is how. We war against spiritual powers by spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. We war against them offensively, against spiritual powers by spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. Now, before we go any farther in this text, I need to ask you a very important question. The bitterness that some of you nurture in your heart. The, the enslavement to pornography that some of you know you experience. The conflict that some of you have with that particular family member. Or that extreme kind of driven way that you tend to live your life. Here's my question. Who is it that is actually enslaving you this way? Have you thought about that? Do you believe verse 12? Do you? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Who is it that has gained true control of your situation? And what are you doing to stop it? Or are you just burying your head in the sand and only seeing your problems from a horizontal human standpoint? If it wasn't for that person, I'd be doing fine. If it wasn't for my loneliness and singleness, I'd be pure. If it wasn't for all the pressure at work, I'd have a more balanced life. My friends, this is spiritually naive talk. You don't just wrestle with flesh and blood. Do, you re- do we wrestle with flesh and blood? Of course we do. But not just flesh and blood. There are powers, very powerful powers, that are at work in your life that you need to reckon with because they are reckoning with you. And if you are here and you have never given your life to Christ then this very same book, chapter two, says that you are a hopeless slave of these same spiritual powers. You're not just being kicked around by them, you are enslaved to them. You are dead spiritually and utterly unable to save yourself because dead people can do nothing for themselves. Listen to how it says it in the New Living Translation for the first three verses of Ephesians 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse 
to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Regardless of whether you're a follower of Christ or not, this passage before us in Ephesians 6 is vital for us. It says vital truths for all of us. Everyone in this room is involved in the spiritual war. You're either a hopeless slave because you don't know the Lord, or you are being kicked around. You got bruises because you're in this war. And you need to learn how to fight this war. And the problem is that some people are just not aware of this war. They think that the only thing that's real is what they see. And if that's the way you come at life, you are gonna be taken advantage of by the enemy. If the, the, the enemy you can't see, you don't pay attention to. Now look with me at Ephesians 6, verse 17. It says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Up until this point in the narrative, everything has been defensive. Armor is, doesn't do anything offensively. It's all defensive. Now the text shifts to a weapon. Lots of space is given to a defensive strategy, but, but there's no harm, there's no weaponry there. And now we move to a weapon that is used, by the way, both defensively, stopping other attacks by swords, but also primarily offensively. So we're just gonna look at two elements of this weapon. We're gonna look at the sword itself. What is the sword? And then we're gonna look at the fact that it is the spirit's sword, okay? What is the sword itself? Very important. And then the fact that it's the spirit's sword. That's also very significant. So number one, the sword described. A note first what the sword is. Tells us clearly, doesn't it? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You think you got it, don't you? And there are some that would argue that that when it says the word of God here, it is referring to all the scriptures, all the words of the Bible. And of course, on one level, that is true. Jesus used this, the scriptures to, to wage war with, with Satan in the wilderness, and he met each temptation of Satan with a scripture from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. But the question is, is that what this phrase, the word of God, means here? Probably not. Two experts in Pauline theology, Gordon Fee and P.T. O'Brien, both maintain that the Apostle Paul usually uses the phrase, the word of God, not to refer to scripture, but as one of his code phrases, he has so many, and we have often talked about that in this church. Paul uses many code phrases and it's another one of his code phrases for the gospel. Uh, if you were to ask, what does Paul usually use when he's referring to the whole compendium of scripture? He usually uses the word Torah or the writings. That's, that's the word he usually uses when he's talking about the whole Bible. 
Listen to what Gordon Fee says in his massive tome of 800 pages, God's Empowering Presence, where he analyzes exegetically uh, every single passage in the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament about the Spirit. He says this, in Paul, one expects the word of God to refer to the message of the gospel, since that is the way he ordinarily uses this kind of language. In contrast to our own habits, Paul never uses this language to refer to scripture. For example, I've chosen three scriptures written by Paul, where in each case he uses the word, the phrase, the word of God, and the context makes it very clear that he is using the phrase, the word of God, as a synonym for the good news that he proclaimed to people. Let me read them to you. We don't have time to unpack this too much. You're gonna have to take it on faith. And if you don't uh, agree with me, study it yourself. And I'd certainly like to, I could interact with you if you wanted to. Colossians 1.25, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 1 Corinthians 14.36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, see? Not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Uh, Remember that Paul often uses little phrases to point to the gospel, and he's emphasizing a nuance from it. So when he's using the word of God, he's emphasizing that the gospel has divine, it's, it's something of divine origin. It's breathed out by God, this gospel. It's, 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 a, it's a divinely birthed message and word, and therefore it has immense power. Now, when, when Paul uses the word, the word of God, the typical word for the English word word is logos. But instead, in this context, Paul switches it up and uses the word rhema. Now, uh, just like in English, we have many words that, that you, we can, are synonyms and they, they, they interchange for the same meaning. But oftentimes there's a little bit of a, a nuanced difference. And, and, and both rhema and logos mean word, but the emphasis is a bit different. Logos emphasizes the, the content of the message and the rhema emphasizes the fact that the message is spoken out audibly. This is very interesting. Because when Paul uses the phrase, the word of God, in other writings in the New Testament, he almost always uses the word logos. But here he switches it up. What Paul is doing is he's deliberately emphasizing that the key to this gospel sword And doing damage to the enemy is that it must be spoken audibly by believers. Listen to what it says in Romans 10, 14, another well-known verse. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him 
of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The sword that wages war against the powers of darkness, my friends, is the gospel spoken audibly for others to hear. If you are trapped in a sin of lust or bitterness or greed or laziness or just dull lethargy where you just don't care anymore or deception or, or ongoing deep discouragement, I can pretty much guarantee that you haven't spoken the gospel to an unbeliever in a very long time. For when we speak the gospel audibly to people, we are pushing back against the enemy. We are resisting the devil and he will flee from us. So, if that's what the sword is, if the sword is the gospel message spoken audibly, so that unbelievers can hear it and believe. Why is it called the sword of the spirit? The sword of the spirit. So we've looked at the sword described. Let's look at the sword's power. We, we read several verses on sovereignty at the first part of our service this, this church is a church that emphasizes reformed doctrine, which means that we, we believe in the, the human responsibility and God's sovereignty, but we put our weight on the sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is in 14-point font bold, and human responsibility is in 8-point font italicized. They're both there, but we believe the emphasis in Scripture is on what God does, his initiative, more than our initiative. Well, it's clear as you read both the Old and New Testament that nobody ever believes in Christ without the Holy Spirit working in their hearts first, giving them new life. Faith in Christ is not something that comes first in our hearts and then as we exercise it in Christ, the Spirit comes in response to our faith. No, it's the opposite of that. The Spirit first does his secret work in our heart and then when he changes our heart, faith grows up and we take hold of Christ. Listen to how it says these same truths in John chapter three. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. This is why, by the way, that, that in a family that, that children will hear the gospel many, many times if they're raised in a Christian home. Why is it that one child believes and follows Christ and other children don't? Was it because you failed to explain the gospel enough or well enough or you were a bad parent? Listen, let's, let's, let's be honest now. All of us are bad parents, okay? We're sinners. All parents are sinners, you know? Um, 
But at the end of the day, people believe or don't believe because the Spirit grants life or he doesn't. It's a mystery. The Spirit isn't only the one that regenerates and brings to life the lost, transfers them from darkness to light, but the Spirit is the one who fills us, the messenger, with boldness to have the courage to to speak up to others. The gospel is, is percolating inside every believer's heart. We love the gospel and it's, it's affected us, but somehow it never gets past the teeth of many, many believers. They're afraid to death to make it vocal, to make it audible. But until it is audible, until somebody actually hears the gospel, the sword is in the sheath, my friends. It does no good to anybody. It has to be heard. And we are scared silly most of the time and therefore we need the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to get it out. And so this is what he does. He is the one that not only works in the person that hears the spoken word, but he helps us to actually speak it. I mean, he particularly does this when we're being intimidated. And by, by, the, by the way, we live in a culture that is intimidating us to not speak the gospel. Listen to what was going on in Acts 4. They took the disciples and he says, and they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then it says a few verses later, and when they had further threatened them, And by the way, their threats weren't empty because they did do bad things to those who spoke. They let them go. And then it says they gathered with the believers. And what do they say? Oh man, we got to shut it down here. Things are getting a little bit tense in the society. We got the government against us. They're going to, bad things are going to start to happen to us. We got to, we got to just lay low for a little while. That wasn't the strategy. Instead, they gathered together and prayed And it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to what? Speak the word of God with boldness. My friends, if if you're trying to water your garden and and you take one end of of the garden hose and stick it in a bucket of water, and you stand at the other side with the, the garden hose, you are not going to be able to water your garden. Because the only way that you're going to water your garden is there's got to be not just water in the hose, but you have to have pressure that pushes the water through the hose. Have you ever noticed that when you turn on your tap, there's pressure in your taps? Without pressure, the water will not go anywhere. The Holy Spirit is the one, friends, that takes that gospel that is inside your pipe, as it were, and forces it out of your mouth so that people actually hear it. It's not just the the snowplow's blade that gets rid of the, the, the snow when we have a snowstorm, but there is big engines on those snowplows that create the power so that that blade can do its work. Power is necessary for the gospel message to be spoken and to be believed. 
So here's a law of spiritual defeat and victory. This is what the law of spiritual defeat and victory looks like in the spiritual realm. Very simple. Spiritual enemies gain ground by silencing gospel proclamation in believers. That's how they get ground, by silencing gospel proclamation in believers. And spiritual enemies lose ground by spirit-empowered gospel proclamation in believers. If we get the message out, as Luther said, listen, the gospel is like a lion in a cage. All you have to do is open the cage and get out of the way. The gospel does, has power all by itself. Your, your words are never gonna win anybody to Christ. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, but the power of God to salvation will not do his, its work if it's not heard. Could it be that one of the reasons that you are so easily defeated by sin is that you have not taken up the sword of the spirit and used it on the offensive? I'd like to give you two illustrations of what this looks like practically, one from scripture and one from our church. So first of all, open up your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and look at the Gospel of John, chapter one. And I'd like to read 10 verses, and I want you to pay attention to the sequence that's happening in these verses. John 1, 35 to 45. Let me read it to you. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now I have told you this before, that 90% of all people who come to believe in Christ come to Christ from hearing it from a friend or a family member. Okay, so I'm gonna do a little survey. If you are a believer in Christ today, if you were led to Christ, if you heard about the gospel through a friend or a family member, if you heard about the gospel from radio or you read a book or a stranger, don't put up your hand, okay? But if you came to believe in Christ through a family member or a friend exposing you to the gospel, put up your hand. Now just take a look around. That's most everybody here. Not everybody, but most everybody. The reality is, is that the, 
there are about 10% worldwide of people who hear through a, a pioneer church planter or somebody that just is street preaching or they, they're listening to somebody on the, on, on the television or the radio or a book or they just open up the Bible because God's moved in their heart and they find the Lord that way. But the vast majority of everyone around the world, it's the same everywhere. People come to Christ through friends or a family member. That's exactly what we find here in, in John 1. Uh, John in verses 35 and 36 has two disciples which are in a special relationship with him. Okay, like friends, but more than friends. And in verse 37, he, he tells them about Christ and they end up following Jesus. One of these men is Andrew. What does he do? He finds his brother, family. He tells Peter about, about Jesus. Next thing you know, Peter is following Jesus. Then we find in verses 43 and 44 that Jesus finds Philip, you know, direct contact. What does he do? He finds a friend, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel comes and, and hears about Christ and follows Christ. This is, this is a, an example of how this works. Do you see how the gospel spreads? We, we are links in a chain. We speak what we have heard. We hear the gospel. Somebody speaks it to us. We hear it. We take it. We, uh, we embody it. Then we take it and we speak it. And it gets passed on. It's like a flame of fire. It, 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 you, you light the next piece of wood. And, and then the fire keeps lighting the next piece of wood. Now let me show you this same pattern in our church. If I could have Mark Pacito, Joanne, Steve, and Shirley. If you could just... Come to the front for a second. They're not going to say anything. I'm not going to embarrass you. You're probably already embarrassed because I already asked you. But I want you to show, show you something. Okay, so I want Joanne to stand over here, and then Shirley, and then Steve, and Mark, you go on the other side. Okay? Now, 35 years ago, there was this introverted <laughs> young woman called Joanne who shared Christ with Shirley. I hope I can get through this. Who later believed. Who then shared the gospel with her boyfriend, Steve. Who later believed. Who later shared the gospel with a client called Mark Pacito. Who later believed. And they're all here in the same church now, years later. You see, it's, it's amazing. And now Mark is sharing it with his wife and with his daughter, Rebecca. You guys can sit down. You see, this is, this is how, my friends, this is how God's kingdom ordinarily, ordinarily, there's exceptions, but this is how ordinarily God's kingdom grows, how Satan's kingdom is diminished. We take territory from him. We take souls from him. That's why we talk about people being a soul winner. They're winning souls. They're taking souls away from the enemy and making them Christ. We, we war against the, the one who is warring against our souls by, by depleting his territory. My, my friends, we are in a spiritual war with invisible 
but very real forces of evil that hold people captive in sin and darkness. And how will they be freed? Only by hearing and believing the gospel message. There is no other way for them to be freed. Your your friends and family need you to tell them because they probably don't know any other Christians than you. But here's the problem. You are afraid. And I am afraid. We're cowards. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit's power. We're just water in the hose. No force to get out. We need pressure. And the Holy Spirit is at pressure. That is why it's not just this, the sword. Paul doesn't just talk about the sword, which is the word of God. He's, it's the sword of the spirit. It's the spirit that takes it out, gives us the power to unsheath the sword. The truth is that our fear will keep us silent. And that is one of Satan's great strategies against the church. And you've heard me say this before, but let me remind you of it again. We love the gospel in this church. We preach on the gospel. I guarantee you that we will lose the gospel if we do not share it. You do not hold on to the gospel by just holding on to it. The way you preserve the gospel in your own heart and for future generations is by giving it away. It's the only way to keep it fresh. Otherwise, it becomes like stale bread that gets moldy and is unedible. So let me ask you, are you grateful that somebody, like for me, it was my dad. Are you grateful that somebody told you about Christ? Are you grateful that somebody did that for you somewhere along the line? Why not make someone else grateful too? Or are you okay? Am I okay with being the link in the chain that stops the progression. The man that mentored me used to say, don't be a dead end street, be a through street. Be a street that connects to other streets. Don't be a dead end street to the gospel. Listen to how Jesus portrays this whole process of stealing souls away from the camp of the enemy. He says this, if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man, speaking there of Satan, when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe. Possessions are lost souls. Until someone even stronger, that's Christ, attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that you will forgive me, Lord. I, I spend too much time making sure I'm suited up in the armor and too little time using my sword. Pray you forgive me. I'm a poor example to this church in that area. 
probably only share the gospel with people three or four times a year in complete ways. Lord, I want it to be much more often than that. I want to be regular in sharing the gospel with my neighbors, with people I meet. Lord, I just want to make time in my schedule for lost people, not just Christians. We don't want to be isolating ourselves in fear from the world. We, we have to reach them. We don't have the power to do so. We're, we're, we're afraid. Thank you that the, the, the sword is not our sword. It's the Spirit's sword. And we ask that the Holy Spirit will then use his powerful sword, that gospel sword, in our hands. That we would use it, even if we don't use it skillfully, we pray that we would use it. And the, and the, and the, the sword itself would do the, the powerful thing that, that the scripture says that we are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. It's God's power and we trust in it. And oh Lord, we are so thankful for, I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the way we love the gospel. We, we celebrate the gospel. We sing about it. We preach about it. We speak it into each other's lives. But Lord, give us uh, courage to speak it to people who don't know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.